just to just to say hello as well. My name is Mike. I'm also one of the leaders here. I serve alongside John T. It's great to be with you this afternoon. Great for you to join us this afternoon. Uh, we hope you're having a wonderful time as we worship the Lord together. And now is the time for us to come to hear God speak to us through his word. So if you could take up your Bibles. Um, we started a series in Malachi last week. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles at hand, if you've got a, a phone or a device or anything like that, uh, turn to Malachi, and we're still in chapter 1. If you don't know where Malachi is, head to the New Testament, go to Matthew, and then just flick back, and Malachi is right there. And as you do that, let me, let me just ask you a question just to try and set things up for this afternoon. Let me ask you, is there anything good that comes from being half-hearted? Just think about it. Anything good from being half-hearted? Think about the last time you saw someone being half-hearted, or maybe you were being a bit half-hearted. Uh, take, a, take a simple example, like fixing your house, fixing things in your house, um, and doing a half-hearted job about them. I can tell you, if, you're, if you live with somebody and you do a half-hearted job, it doesn't usually end up very well. But imagine you're painting a room in your house, um, and you're half-hearted. What does that look like? Well, literally, let's say you paint half the room one color and leave the other half. It would be weird. Or, and you do strokes here and then rollers here and just random stuff. It would be weird. I mean, I don't know, maybe modern art, it might be quite cool. Um, so let's take a better example. You're installing a sink tap, like a bathroom tap. It doesn't quite fit, and it's leaking a little bit, but you, that'll do. A half-hearted job, just leave it. How is that going to end? See, it doesn't look good. It won't end well. Doing anything in a half-hearted manner is frustrating. I don't think it ever leads to anything that's good. And today we're going to see what it means when we offer half-hearted worship to God. When we come to God with a, a that'll do sort of attitude. That does not lead to anything good with God. That is what we're going to see this afternoon. Now, we're continuing in this series in Malachi. Uh, just to remind you of where we've got to, last week we spoke about the big problem in the time of Malachi. The people had returned from exile. They'd come back to Jerusalem, the great city that God had promised to them. And they looked around, and the walls were, were lo a lot lower than they remembered. The temple was a lot smaller. Everything about them seems weaker and punier relative to what they remembered. Israel is no longer that powerhouse in, the, in Solomon's time. It's a small province now under the rule of Persia. They have to pay taxes. They don't have a lot of independency. And so swirling around the minds of the people is this question, does God still love us? That is what we saw last week. And last week we saw how God was saying to them, I have loved you. God loves you. He truly does. And if last week we were looking at where God stands with his people, this week and for the next few weeks, we're going to see where the people stand in relation to God. And we're going to see how a small view of God's love, where you start losing sight of God's love, how that can affect us as we live as his people. Now, the structure of the book, I mentioned last week, there are these six big disputations in the book, where God makes a claim against his people. The people then challenge that claim and saying, look, how is that the case? How are we doing that? And then God explains why. We're going to see that pattern, and we're going to come to another one this week. Now, this week is quite a long reading. We're doing chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through to, the end, uh, to halfway through chapter 2. So we're going to take it in two chunks. So I'm going to read that first chunk for you now. So we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 6, through to the end of chapter 1. So let me read. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask... How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. 
But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Great. Let's just dive into this first bit. Before we do, just a couple of things I wanted to, just to say as we approach the text. Uh, first thing is to say, in, in verse 6, there is this language of slaves and masters. And that will make many of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because the concepts of slaves and slavery is one that can bring back a lot of painful hurtful memories related to, to different types of slavery that we've seen throughout history that we see today as, as Cathy was praying. And we need to acknowledge how wrong that was and that is. But I want to clarify the point here isn't to address slavery per se, but to show the relationship between God and his people as a master and servants, a one that is meant to be built on honor and respect. That is why it's set in the context of, a, of the relationship between a father and a son. There's this loving honor and respect between a father and a son alongside the positional honor and respect between a master and a slave. That is how that phrase is being used. Now, the second thing, just to quickly mention, is that as you, as you read through this, in the next reading we have in chapter 2, the primary audience of this disputation sounds like it's towards the priests. You see that in verse 6, and you see that again in chapter 2, verse 1. And the priests back then were the representatives of the people. They performed the sacrifices, they, they told people what God's will was, and so naturally we might read this passage and think, oh, this is only really relevant for the leaders. And that is sort of true. Leaders of the people today, of the church today, are held to higher standards of responsibility and judgment. No pressure on me and Jonti. But um, we see that in passages like James 3 verse 1. But we also need to remember that this is pre-Christ, before Jesus' first coming. After Jesus came, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that those who believe in Christ are now a royal priesthood. By being in Jesus, by being a Christian means that all of us are priests and priestly in our role. All of us are representatives of God to other people, which is an awesome thing. But that means you need to hear passages like this too, so you can't switch off. Okay, so I hope that just sets up a couple of things. Let's dive in together. So did you see that claim in that first disputation? Did you see that claim? God says, verse 6, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? God is saying, look, you don't honor me. You don't respect me. Take it a step further, and God says, you show contempt for my name, end of verse 6. The claim is that the priests are despising the very name of God. That's a pretty strong claim. If someone said that to you or I, I'm guessing like many of you, I'd, I'd get pretty defensive. Like, 
just like the Israelites here. What, what do you mean? How am I despising God's name? Here's the challenge. How? We're bringing things to the altar in worship. How are we despising him? What's the problem? God explains in verse 7. By offering defiled food on my altar. See, bringing food to the altar was a central act of worship. This, that's, what you, that's when you bring your best to God. But the people and the priests weren't. Do you see that issue? The priests were coming in half-hearted worship. And that was what was showing contempt for God. You see verse 8, look at the sorts of animals they offer. They bring the blind animals, the lame, the diseased. It's the stuff that would go in the bin anyway. That's what they're bringing before God. Um, I love fruit pastels. Anyone else love fruit pastels? They're great. Absolutely great. Uh, but my favorites are the dark colors. The purple one, the red one. Sometimes the green ones are quite good as well, right? Anyone, anyone agree? Okay. So in my opinion, the yellow and orange ones are a waste of time. So when I was a kid, what I'd do is I just actually, when I got a fruit pastel tube, I just unclip the middle bit, get them all lined up, just pick out all those purple, red, and green ones, and then give the yellow and orange ones, I'll either put them in the bin or give them to my sister. Which was a bit harsh because she loved the same ones I did. And she'd look at it and go, oh, this is great. And then it's like, oh, what are you doing? That's maybe why she's gone to Korea. Um, <laughs> sorry, terrible joke. Um, but look, do you see the point? Here were the people prioritizing the best stuff for themselves. They were taking what was good, the best, and giving God the scraps. Now, I need to be clear about something here. This isn't about judging people for what they give in worship or how they are worshiping. Do you remember when Jesus once saw a widow giving these just two little coins in worship? And he looked at her. He knew her heart. He said, she is giving all that she has. The point God is, uh, Jesus is making, God is making here, is it's about the heart. It's about our heart attitudes. It's about those who have that capacity, who have plenty, who have the stuff, who have a flock of lambs, but deliberately give the lamest, the most defiled, and say, oh, that'll do for God. Who are thinking, oh, at least I'm giving something to God in worship. That, that's fine. Half-hearted worship. Here's the major problem with this sort of half-hearted worship. You see on the screen there, the problem. You're treating God with contempt. Those are God's words and not mine. You see that in verse 6? and of verse 6. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. You see that again? That's God's name. God's name would, refers to who God is. It's his character. You're treating God as his being with contempt. And not just that, but you see that again in verse 7. It's, you're saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, end of verse 7. The table there refers to worship. The worship of God is now contemptible. You're despising God. See, the people should have been showing honor to God for who he is as their creator and their savior. They knew he was the very one who gives them life and breath. Sometimes, I love sometimes doing this to people. Okay, just taking a big, big breath right now of this warm summer kind of dank air. Just breathe in and then breathe out. Okay, do you realize that God has let you do that? God allowed you to take that breath right now as I asked you to. That is who God is. The Israelites knew that. But not only that, they also knew him as the one who would call them out from exile back to the promised land. And that is why right worship to him was, was right, it was good to say my whole heart, my whole life is directed to you, God, in trust and in faith and in hope. And the sign of showing that worship was to bring their best to the table. This is my wholehearted right worship to you, God. Think about how, how, how we use food in our class. Man, I feel like I preach on food a lot. I'm at this church. 
But if you think about how we use food in our culture, it's a way of showing somebody, I, I honor you for who you are. I invite you into my home, my home to say, look, I, I want to respect you. I want to have a relationship with you. I, I love you. I want to show you that honor and dignity that's due you. That is what you're doing. Thinking of them more highly. So imagine if I invited you round to a meal to our house. You'd then be thinking, oh, well, Mike's trying to show some honor and some dignity. He wants to build a relationship with me. He, he cares for me. And imagine then that morning you see me in the supermarket doing my shopping. You know that I'm, you're, you're coming around to my house that evening. And you look at, you know when you chat, but you sometimes poke and look in someone's basket to say, oh, I wonder what they're shopping. And you see it and you're like, oh, I see the steaks. If you're a meat eater, you see the steaks there. If you're not, don't worry, I won't feed you that. If you're a vegetarian, you, you see the aubergines and the red peppers and stuff. They taste good. Um, but you see that and you're thinking, oh man, this, this is great. I'm really looking forward to this evening. And you get to my house and you knock on the front door and you're, you're expectant, aren't you? What is my, I feel like this is going to be a great evening together. And then you turn up, you sit down, and what I serve you is a leftover slice of out-of-date frozen pizza. It's not only tasteless, but it should be in the bin. How would you feel? What would you think? You'd feel dishonored, right? You'd feel cheated. You'd feel disrespected. You thought I cared for you, but you thought I invited you into my home to show you that I respect and care and love you. Instead, I've treated you despicably with contempt. That is what it's like bringing defiled food to the altar of God. That is what it's like when we offer half-hearted worship to God. God himself says, half-hearted worship to me is treating, with me, with, treating me in cont contempt. Now, I know that's a strong word, and it's unsettling when we hear those types of words, but you've heard it in the reading, contempt appears four times in just this section. But if you think about the way I treated you that evening, don't worry, I really won't. If I ever invite you, please do come. But imagine if that is the way I treated you that evening. Wouldn't you feel despised? You'd feel angry and annoyed. You'd probably vent to everyone in the Globe Church, don't ever go to Mike's house for dinner. Half-heartedness is in many ways the same as being, maybe even worse than being no-hearted. See, the irony is, it would have been better if I'd never invited you at all. At least then we, our boundaries would be clear. We wouldn't have this awkwardness. But the fact I treated you that way makes you think, it was a waste of time. I'd rather not have gone. What's the point? That is what even God says here. In verse 9, he's sarcastic. Go on then. Let's see your offerings. Do you think I'd accept that rubbish that you're offering to me? And then verse 10, he says, oh, I, you know what? It's better if you just shut the temple doors. Don't even waste time setting the fires alight because I know your heart. I know you're half-hearted. I know you're not committed to me. I know you're treating me with contempt. And I, I suspect many of us know what that f might feel like. Do you ever know that feeling when you're talking to somebody and they don't really seem to be listening or to be engaged? You can tell, right? And it can be unsettling. You start to wonder, do they really care? I've done that to people and it's terrible. And sometimes if they're bold and kind, they'll say, you seem like you're really busy or preoccupied. If they're bold and honest, they'll say, you aren't really listening to me, are you? What did I just say? And I've been on the other end of that too and it's... It's unsettling, isn't it? It's not a nice feeling. Well, go a bit further. Think about those people, friends, close relatives, people who are half-hearted towards you. 
who never seem to bother, who think of you last, and sometimes not even at all, who don't really seem to care about you. There comes a point when you wonder, do they really like me? Maybe they're even doing this to spite me. See, do you see how half-heartedness can actually be so destructive in a relationship? Well, how much more so with God? The people here are treating God half-heartedly. Do we think that's okay? Of course not. This is the God who has rescued them, who has promised them a kingdom, who's gathering all the nations under his grace and blessing. This is a God who's brought them back out of exile and reminded them, look, I have loved you. That is their God. Imagine this. If someone laid down their life for you, when you say you faced a major illness, you needed a liver transplant, and someone said, look, I will give my, part of my liver for you, would you be half-hearted in saying thank you? But is that how we sometimes approach our worship with God? You know, John T. mentioned at the start, sometimes we find it hard to worship him. Sometimes we can come with that, oh, this will do attitude, where we worship God just like a tick box, tick box exercise. Ah, oh, well, that's, that, that'll be okay. How is your worship even now as you hear these words from Malachi? Right now as you're sitting here listening to these words, and if that isn't enough, God says, look, he reminds his people, look, let me just remind you who I am in case you've forgotten. In verse 11, he says, my name will be great among the nations. The Gentiles are going to gather from where the sun rises to where it sets. They're going to come from around the world to worship me in wholeheartedness. And you, you are my covenantal people. Surely you should be worshiping me in fullness, more than the Gentiles. Verse 14, he says, look, I am the great king. Have you forgotten Do you see how foolish it is to treat this great king, to treat God with contempt, with half-hearted worship? But that is exactly what the Israelites do. They give their worst, the lame, the defiled, the diseased. This is challenging to, to read because as I read it, I was thinking, is that how I treat God sometimes? How often do we forget how much he loves us, how, how great he is? That he is actually the God of the universe. This book, the Bible, his word reminds us constantly of his greatness, of his great love for his people, and we so quickly lose sight of it. We're always tempted to, aren't we? We always have been from ever since the beginning. Think of Adam and Eve. They were so blessed. They had absolutely everything they needed. They have creation at its finest and freshest. Super organic food, plenty of it. All the trees and fruit were theirs to eat. They were naked and unashamed. Why? Because they had nothing to hide. Nothing to be afraid of. And there they were with God in the presence of his blessing. And what do they do? They lose sight of God's love because of something else they see that entices them. They hear this lie that makes them doubt God's love, have a small view of God's love and his promise. And they become half-hearted in their worship. They treat God with contempt. And we can also so easily fall into half-heartedness. The constant pull and temptation to drift into half-heartedness is easy. How is our worship with God? How is your worship with God? Not just on Sundays when we gather as a church, but day by day, what does your worship look like? Is it a tick, tick box activity, a, a sort of half-hearted, oh, this will do? Or do you come wholehearted? offering your best, 
Let me just be clear about something. There are days when worship is hard. There are days when it's hard for us to find joy because of particular circumstances, pressures that come on us. And I don't think this is necessarily about that. I think this is more about when you have that space, when you are back in Jerusalem and you're looking around the temple and all that God has promised, and you realize you're standing in God's presence, and when you approach God with that, well, that'll do type of worship. When you look at the church and think, ah, I'm not sure it's really worth it. It seems small and it's puny. Are we like the Israelites who look around at, at the at what God is doing and lose sight of God's love for them? Are we like them in reserving the best for ourselves and giving God the scraps of our worship? This can play out in what we do with our priorities, where we prioritize ourselves before thinking of God. How we use our time, prioritizing things that we like to do, that entertain us before thinking about the depth of relationship and worship with God with our resources, making sure our houses are all in order and we have the best before considering God's house, what his people might need. We start to lose sight of who he is and what he's done. And instead we start zooming in on the stuff around us, building our own little temples. Drawn away from focusing on God, our God, our creator and our savior. Getting into a habit of thinking, oh, this will do. How's your worship? How is our worship at the moment? Have we lost sight of God's love? Have we lost sight of who God is? Do you realize you're in danger? Or perhaps even already despising God in half-hearted worship? But hear this. Look, here's the second thing we need to hear. No matter where we are in worship at the moment, there is a warning that God does give. If not now, there may be times in the future when we drift into half-heartedness And every time we do, hear this warning. Here's the second thing, the consequence. It's smeared with dung. Um, I'll come to that in a second. Let's read the second part, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Okay, so this is the second bit we're going to come into. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned away from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Here's God's warning for half-hearted worshippers. Here's a consequence. You'll be smeared with dung. That's the image. Smeared with dung. Uh, that word dung there, it's also kind of, 
it means the leftover parts of the sacrifice, like the stuff like the liver and the intestines, stuff that was seen as unclean, that is waste. It's often called awful in English. Having that smeared all over your face is an awful thing to happen, right? I just couldn't resist. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible joke. Just to check in if you're awake. But you can picture it. I don't know if you've ever been smeared with poo. I can tell you it's not a good thing. I've had a fair few punamis in my time. Poo and tsunami, punamis in my time. Not me, as in from my kids. When they have punamis, it gets smeared all over your hands and your arms. It is a, not a nice feeling. It's not fun, trust me. But to have it smeared on your face. I remember once when I, I was going to commuting to work once, and I, was, I stepped in dog poo, I didn't realize. Um, and I was standing on the tube for about half an hour. It's really crowded. And I was standing there, I got my headphones in, and you know, just kind of concentrating, thinking about work. And you start to smell that weird smell. And I was like, what is that smell? It smells like poo. And you start looking around going, who is that? Like, where's that smell coming from? And slowly, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to figure out, you know, in a polite British way, like, yeah, okay, who is that? And slowly, people start moving away from me, one by one. And I'm like, what's going on? I can still smell it though. I'm like, who is that? I'm trying to find the culprit. They slowly move away until I'm the only one left standing there in this carriage. It's a packed carriage, rush hour, but they've all moved away. And then I see it, the shame. Everyone's looking at me, you're the culprit. And I wanted to get off at the next stop as quickly as possible, right? And that's the consequence. You will be ashamed before the people if you shame and dishonor God with half-hearted worship. God shames you by taking what you give and smearing it all over your face. You see that in verse 3? I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices. But it's not just a shame. It's the reality of being excluded from his presence, from his people. Look at verse 2. Do you see, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. See, you will be cursed and not blessed. The promise to Abraham, the promise that we saw last week, that we were reminded of last week to Jacob and then to the Israelites, to his descendants, was that God would bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. God was promising his blessing upon his people, his protection over his people. He would cover their shame, uphold their glory. But when you offer half-hearted worship, you are instead cursed. Even your blessings are cursed. He goes on in verse 3, because of you I will rebuke your descendants. It's a slightly tricky verse that. It could be that it's referring to the seed in the sense of descendants, or it could be the seed in terms of your crops. You might have a little footnote there saying it could be the, the grain. But I think it's referring to your descendants, the people. It's a covenantal term of language. Because do you realize where half-hearted worship puts you? You're no longer under the covenant, but outside of it. You're no longer under God's blessings, but under his curse. No longer welcome in the presence of God, just like I was unwelcome on the tube any longer. As you see at the end of verse 3, after that public shaming, it says, and you will be carried off with it, outside the temple, because you're unclean, no longer welcome in God's presence. And this acts as rebuke for your descendants because they're going to now start outside the covenant. By God's grace, he'll give them an opportunity, but they start under God's curse rather than under, their, under his blessing. You get the point overall. God's warning is stark. Half-hearted worship that despises God will be shamed by God. He wants his people to know that continual unfaithfulness and dishonoring of God in worship will lead to them no longer being under the covenant. 
Doesn't this remind you of another church in the New Testament? There's a church in Revelation called Laodicea. It's wealthy. It has much in the eyes of the world. A church that, that started in right and good worship. But they are half-hearted as well. And Jesus calls them lukewarm. He tells them that they are wretched and pitiful because of their half-heartedness. And what's the end result? Jesus says, I am going to spit you, literally vomit you out of my mouth. We saw last week, God's love is contingent on his promise to his people. His promise and his love brings his people back from exile into his presence. But for those who abuse that love, who know of that covenant promise and all that God has done for them, but still refuse to acknowledge God and dishonor his name with half-hearted worship, they will be cut off. They will be exiled. There are consequences. God doesn't just say, hey, look, live how you want and I'm still going to love you. That's not the message. He wants this deep relationship with us. He wants our wholehearted worship. So how, how are we hearing that, that warning this afternoon? I know this is hard stuff. I warned you last week. Some of Malachi is heavy. But God is saying this out of love. See, if you've ever been left out of a group, if you've ever been publicly shamed like I was, cut off from others, it's a horrible feeling. But imagine having to walk that walk of shame before the thousands upon thousands of God's people and the angels throughout the ages with dung smeared on your face. Never again to be in the presence of God. Half-hearted worship is destructive. So if you're here this afternoon, if you aren't worshipping God, or if you're here this afternoon and you know that you're offering God half-hearted worship, then would you hear that warning? Would you hear God say, look, it's not going to end well if you carry on like this. Would you come and repent and turn to him? But as you turn, I would love you to see his grace. This is the final thing. There's grace in this promised high priest. Here is just how gracious God is. We don't deserve this sort of patience, but look at verse 4. And you will know that I have sent you this warning, he says. Instead of banishing and exiling all these half-hearted worshippers, he uses his word through Malachi to say, hey, look, this is a warning. I want to give you a chance. I want to give you time to turn to the solution. The entire warning of dung smearing is so that God's covenant with Levi may continue. Now, just to be clarified, this isn't the same covenant as the covenant to Abraham. That's, that's the big one that we see throughout Scripture. This is a smaller one mentioned in a couple of places, like Jeremiah 33. But it's no less significant. The point is this. The solution to half-hearted worship isn't to try harder with your worship. The solution is actually to realize what God is trying to point us towards. In fact, who he's pointing us towards. And that is the perfect high priest, the promised Levite, who brings us into right worship. See, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. This is the tribe that included Aaron, Moses' brother. They were the priests. Those are probably the same priests here offering service to the temple. And you see how imperfect these priests are. These are priests who are leading astray, who are half-hearted in their worship. But God says, look, I'm going to restore this covenant with Levi and point you towards this promised perfect high priest. The one I initially established, the one I always planned for, the one who will be that great high priest that I had always intended for you. I mean, look at verses 5 and 6. Aren't they beautiful? Because this covenant with him will be one of life and peace. This priest is going to call for reverence and honor towards God himself. 
Verse 6, true instruction, nothing false. The truth is declared clearly through this high priest. But he not only declares it, but he walks in peace and righteousness. And end of verse 6, and he turns many from sin. I mean, Malachi is really just doing the work for me. Because you can see who this points to. As Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How he is the prince of peace. How he comes and calls people to revere and honor his father. How he's the one who says nothing false. Who declares God's truth rightly, plainly for the people. How he's the one who walked in utter perfection and righteousness. And he's the one who turns many from sin. Not only by his word, but by his priestly sacrifice of his own body and blood as that true and final lamb. Do you see how Jesus is this great, true high priest, the promised Levite? He's the, the one who fulfills the covenant of Levi. Now, if you're thinking, oh, but I, th- I thought Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not from Levi. You're right. Jesus wasn't a descendant from Levi. But, but Hebrews actually tells us that Jesus is actually of a, priest, of, of a higher order. He's the one who comes before even the covenant of Levi was established because he's the order of Melchizedek who was back there with Abraham when Abraham's covenant was being established. Jesus is the one who sets the pattern for the covenant of Levi and he's the one who comes to fulfill the covenant of Levi as the priest of all priests. That is who Jesus is. And God is saying, look, we need to come to him. That we need to realize that we are defiled and diseased and unworthy before God and yet Christ becomes that perfect sacrifice for us. He's the only priest who brings worthy sacrifice. He's the true priest who turns us all from sin, who brings peace and life. He's the one who shows us, teaches us, and models for us what wholehearted worship really looks like. It's his promised spirit who enables us to worship fully and rightly. See, all the human priests back then of, the, of this world are imperfect. Verse 8 makes it really clear. The leaders then, just like they are now, they lead people astray. They are distracted in half-hearted worship for God, concerned more for their own lives and success, distracted with wanting people to worship them instead of God. Just look at the example of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we see that in many of the leaders today who have sought to build their own empires and platforms. But God says, look, the reality for them is verse 9. They're being despised and humiliated before the watching world. But instead, he calls us to look to the one and true high priest who lays down his life for others, for me and for you, who turns us from sin to life. And through the work of this great high priest, those who trust in him will all be called priests. That is why we're called a royal priesthood. And that is what we want to be doing here as pastors. We're not the priests here to save you. Be clear on that. Only one person can do that, and that's the true high priest, Jesus. That is who we want you to know and see. That is what we're about as a church. And if we're not doing that, you have every reason to challenge us. And the amazing thing is when you, when you look and when you come and you see him, you're going to see the beauty and splendor of God. You will see how much he actually loves you, how his promise last week of I have loved you is so true as you gaze upon that great high priest who gave his life for you who looks at you through his blood-stained face under the shadow of the crown of thorns and says, Welcome, my child. That is what causes us to worship rightly, to worship wholeheartedly. When we have Jesus in view, 
when we see all that Christ has done for our sake, that is what guards our hearts from half-heartedness. That's what makes sure that we do not treat God and worship for God with contempt. Do we want to be worshiping wholeheartedly? Then we need to be looking to Jesus. Look at what he gave you. Look at what he went through for you. Look how much he loves you. Look how, how much God wants you to know. Look, my promise is good. My son has shown you that. That is what brings us to wholehearted worship. See, I could have said, look, there are loads of practical things to do. You, you know, read your Bible more, pray more, serve more. Those are, of course, good things to do. Prioritize them, sure. But you need to hear this. If you don't have Christ at the center of any of these things, then soon you'll find that half-heartedness start to creep in. You'll start to say like they did there, back in chapter 1, verse 13, what a burden. That is what it's going to feel like. And that is why we need to keep that great high priest at the center of our focus, as the source and channel of our worship. So friends, let's look to Jesus. Look at his beauty, the great high priest. And I pray that through him, seeing him, that we will see the fullness of worship that we're called to and that we can and should bring before God. Let's pray together.